This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. On today's episode, we're discussing humanity's thousand-year struggle over technology and prosperity. Our guest today is Darren Asamoglu, Professor of Economics at MIT. Our host for this conversation is Carl Miller, Research Director at Demos and author of The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. Here's Carl with more. So hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared with me, Carl Miller. We're recording here in London. I'm excited to introduce uh, our guest here, Daron Asimoglu. He's an acclaimed economist who has taught as a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology since 1993. He's author of the best-selling books, including Why Nations Fall and The Narrow Corridor. His new book, which will be discussing themes of now, is Power and Progress, A Thousand-Year-Old Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Daron, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Carl. It's great to be here. All right. So let's start with the overall idea, perhaps, that you're trying to kill with the book. Tell us about the the bandwagon of, of progress and why that's wrong. Yeah. So let me actually take one step back. What we are, in some sense, attacking is a deep-rooted techno-optimism, which claims that technology, by its nature, is always good for humanity and it has a preordained, essentially definitive path upon which we are bound to progress unless we somehow block it. And if you put these two together, you arrive to a worldview in which there may be transition costs. Some people may suffer temporarily, but ultimately we're all going to benefit whatever happens so long as we are working towards technological progress. And this is what we want to push against. And we want to push against that because, A, we believe, based on history and economics, that there are many ways in which you can use technologies that do not generate these broad-based benefits. And second, that the path of technology is very malleable. 
there's a lot of choice which specific direction you develop it with very different distributional consequences. And the bandwagon of progress is essentially the name we give to the body of work in economics that is part of this argument which says, as long as technology improves your capabilities to produce goods and services, it's going to increase wages. So it is sort of a happy story that labor demand and firms' desire to increase their scale are sufficient forces to translate some of the technological improvements into benefits for workers. And we question that. How how old is this argument? Because, of course, I think th those of us that are living through the current revolution might trace it back to the kind of Bay Area libertarians and a certain vision coming from Silicon Valley. But is this a kind of argument which we've always been told as a culture and as a society, stretching back through the various revolutions which have previously swept through um, the way that we live? Yes and yes. In a broad way, humans live in communities and they have to coordinate, they have to follow some sort of common path. And so they have to be convinced of accepting certain arrangements. So the argument that whatever is being chosen by leaders is for the common good, I think is as old as humanity. And sometimes it is. Sometimes when a band of hunter-gatherers choose to go north rather than south, that could, in fact, be exactly what they need to do, and a leader may be the one who catalyzes that decision. But in many, many places, especially since the beginning of settled agriculture, leaders have also told us, toil harder and that's good for society. You're going to get your reward in the other world, or this is your station in life. But the specific version of the productivity bandwagon techno-optimism, actually you start seeing that in a very clear version, for example, in the middle, starting in the middle of the 18th century with the British Industrial Revolution. So ideas that technological progress will generate benefits, then those will start becoming broadly shared through the labor market, through improvements in quality and product variety. You see that already in some of the forerunners of modern economics, who were amazingly revolutionary in their way of thinking. You know, Adam Smith, I, how could I disagree with his super amazing intellectual <laughs> leadership? I'm an economist. But Adam Smith was a firm believer in the productivity bandwagon. He did not want to entertain the idea that technological improvements could, for example, create joblessness. And David Ricardo, by the way, who is perhaps the second most important economist after Adam Smith, also started there. He was a member of parliament. As you know, he made speeches to parliament saying machinery will not create unemployment. But then he changed his mind. And then he started, added a chapter to his principles of economics saying, actually, I'm worried about new machinery creating joblessness, and so I had to turn, turn around on that. So there, there's been a debate on this all the time, but when economists came back to it at the beginning of the 20th century, it was again the more optimistic take that was, uh, was the one that was adopted. Mm. So does capital and the elites that wield it, do they always win from these revolutions? No, no. I mean, first of all, there are many disruptions. Inflation, world wars, they led to big losses to capital owners in the 20th century. But the reason why I hesitated is actually, if you find a path of technology that is more pro-human, more useful for workers, we can talk more about what that is in a second, but actually firms benefit from that. 
The best example for that, I would say, is the social democratic equilibrium that emerged in Sweden after the Great Depression and the victory of the uh, Swedish Workers' Party in the 1932 election. That led to a corporatist model that was quite cooperative between capital and labor. Labor had very strong bargaining power, high wages, social welfare programs. But at the same time, that whole system was very encouraging for businesses to invest in machinery and technology, choose a path of technology that was both good for their competition in export markets, but at the same time help workers. And businesses made a lot of profits out of that. So there's a path that's actually good for capital out of this as well. But you know, in the US, for example, over the last four and a half decades, many business managers and many capital owners or the richest sort of people who control corporations have gone much more into a strategy that squeezes labor hard, tries to reduce labor costs, automation, surveillance. Again, that can generate profits for capital, but it's not the only thing that generates profit for capital. I gave a very long answer to this because I I don't want to create the impression that there is a mortal conflict between capital and labor. Mm. I think creating the right type of technological path can be beneficial for capital as well. Mm. Well, Darren, I know lots of people listening to this are going to be very anxious, possibly, um, maybe excited as well about the current revolution we're living through. Of course, artificial intelligence, and you can't move for someone asking ChatGPT something at the moment. So we, we're, of course, going to get to that. But I know in the book you trace a, a much longer thread looking at the revolutions of the past and what they can teach us about our current moment. And I think as a kind of a one-time historian myself, that is an important thing for us also to consider and to dwell on just for a moment to consider the time we live in now. So tell us about the Panama Canal. And, and the lessons that that has for us around the kind of power of persuasion, perhaps agenda setting and powerful visions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think if you look at history, especially, you know, of course, history is there to be interpreted to some degree. So the lenses through which you look at them is important. But if you look at it through these lenses of people acting as technological leader, visionaries, uh, articulating the common good and, and optimism about the future of technology, you see so many examples of it. And you see successful applications and you see disastrous ones. And the Panama Canal is very important because it is the it's a big project of Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was the epitomization of the techno-optimism of the second half of the 19th century. And he was very successful because he brought exactly that vision a belief in technology, a belief in trade, small people will contribute capital, build a big public infrastructure, and that's going to spearhead trade between East and West, and it's going to open up uh, oceanic routes, and technology is going to come to make things that appeared infeasible, feasible. He, that was exactly his shtick for the Suez Canal. And people were skeptical. He pushed. He was very skillful in building coalitions, cajoling people, getting French investors on board, getting Egyptian ruler on board. And he succeeded. All his techno-optimism paid off. When people said, no, you cannot build a canal at the sea level without the locks in Suez, he said, no, we'll find a way of working out the technology. And he turned out to be right. But that's the problem. That success made him even more hubristic. 
And that success was always a success from his own point of view. For example, he didn't care about coerced laborers in Egypt who were not beneficiaries of uh, the Suez Canal. And he brought the same set of blinders, the same confidence, the same rhetoric, the same techno-optimism to the Panama Canal where the conditions were very different and it was a complete disaster. He went in thinking he could do exactly the same, but the in two ways. The Panama was very different. First of all, there was no way you could build a canal without locks, without doing a much, much bigger scale project. And second, the local conditions, especially yellow fever, malaria in the rainy season, meant that the type of heavy labor-based approach wouldn't be feasible. As a result, 22,000 plus people died. Thousands of the best engineers from France perished. Millions of dollars equivalent of money was lost by many, many small investors. You know, it was a complete disaster because he was approaching it with the same set of blinders that had become more confident because of his earlier successes. So if Tenno optimism, then, the Panama Canal proves is something which can lead us in the wrong direction technologically, is the next historical epoch you look at, settled agriculture, evidence of even when the revolution might pay off in terms of productivity increases, that might not be a good thing for society and for most of us that live within it. Or I would say it's not enough to create broad-based prosperity. So the let's just, you know, to keep it brief, let's just take one formative technological breakthrough in the medieval era, water mills and then windmills that both really completely revolutionized a lot of the production. But great, Amazing improvements in labor productivity, amazing improvements in what we could do, but they weren't enough to increase the living conditions of the majority of the population who were working as farming workers. Why? Because those workers had no organization. They were still tied by feudal or servile relations. There was no competition. Windmills, for example, were completely monopolized by abbots and a very small group of noble landholders. No competition actually, in many ways, coercive relations intensified. And that's not the kind of institutional structure that's sufficient to generate broad-based prosperity. When have we, Darren, most successfully kind of pushed back, I guess, against the collectivizing kind of impulses of these revolutions, I guess, through either social or institutional reform, either forced the benefits to become more widely distributed or force technology to be developed in a certain direction which led to more widely distributed outcomes. Yeah, I think two examples are really inspiring and very well understood by now. One is what started happening in the UK, for instance, in the second half of the 19th century. And the second is what happened in throughout the industrialized world in the three, three and a half decades after World War II. In both cases at least Simon Johnson and my interpretation, is very much consistent with our conceptual framework. You had the two pillars of broad-based prosperity, shared prosperity. One, a technology that was worker-friendly. It wasn't just automating work. It was creating new tasks for workers. It was helping workers become more productive in their tasks. And second, it was a, a bolstered by an institutional structure that created bargaining power, negotiation power for workers so that they could not be completely monitored, hugely disciplined, coerced into relationship, and they could ask for a fair share of the surplus that they created. In the second half of the 19th century, this is very telling because it is such a contrast to what happened the previous 100 years. The beginning of the Industrial Revolution was a harsh time for the working people. Real 
incomes for workers, by and large, did not increase much for about 100 years. Their working hours intensified, their working conditions worsened, their living conditions worsened in infested, very unhealthy, very crowded cities. So the first 100 years of the Industrial Revolution produced very little benefit for the working people. Why did that change in the second half? Democracy, civil service, becoming more interested in cleaning up cities and providing public services education, and trade unions. So trade unions became legal. Things like master-servant acts became uh, abolished in the 1870s. And so that created the bargaining power. Together with that, both because of the technologies coming from the United States, because of the push from unions and other factors, technologies that started increasing workers' capabilities in new manufacturing tasks and white-collar tasks started spreading as well. And you see exactly the same factors in the decades after World War II. There was a lot of automation, but automation was not the only thing that technology did. Lots of new tasks, lots of new activities for workers, new industries, and bolstered by a strong labor movement and a democratic process. And those two pillars, I think, are really critical for understanding these processes, and their dismantling is also very important for understanding what went on after the 1980s. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Right. Artificial intelligence. We've arrived. So what historical echoes, when you sit back and you consider the moment we're living through now, what are the historical echoes that you think are most poignant or most important for us to remember? 
Do you see the powerful visions of the Panama Canal? Do you see the prospect of workers losing out, like some of the agricultural reforms? Do you see either the prospect or the reality of institutional reform, like post-World War II reconstruction? What are the big ideas or moments of the past, do you think, that we need to remember? All of the above. <laughs> well, that was a, that's a nice short answer. Um, well, let me, let me say two things, and then we can do First of all, I said 1980s because I think we cannot understand the current moment in isolation of how we've used digital technologies over the last 40 years. AI is different, but it is a continuation of the digital revolution that started sometime in the 1970s and it really came into fruition in the 1980s. Now, some people will criticize me and say AI is completely different from previous computers, and we can debate that, but there is actually a lot of continuity in terms of what AI is being used and how it's being processed. That's the first thing. So we'll talk about digital technologies. But second, yes, if you want to see historical parallels, De La Sepsis Panama Hubris, Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, idea of monitoring workers, monitoring schools, monitoring hospitals, the medieval separation of elites to non-elites, the two-tiered society, the early stages of the British Industrial Revolution where there was this idea that meritocratically the innovators, the entrepreneurs would benefit and the lazy, not-so-productive people could be left behind. All of these, plus Standard Oil's monopolization of key resources, all of them bunched into one, I think we get AI. I, I know you make much in your book of the idea that actually the directions that technology goes in is a choice that we make, and, and it can go in one direction, it can go in another. And that the current directions in AI are around automation and the replacement of workers and how that might have all kinds of deleterious and harmful consequences for society. Beginning to think about solutions and responses now, what do you do about that kind of thing? Because it, it often feels like this idea of permissionless innovation, the idea that a tiny number of elite technologists with access to vast reserves of capital and talent kind of make these decisions themselves about which direction they want to go on, and they made that decision around automation. How do we, people listening to this, policymakers maybe, writers, academics, what, what do we do about that seemingly essential nature of the way that technology development actually works? Well, uh, I think those are exactly the right questions. But again, I don't think that's new. Technological leaders pushing their agendas existed long before AI and some of the tensions you can see in earlier episodes as well. So that is the reason why when I was trying to answer your earlier questions, as well as the history, I wanted to emphasize the conceptual framework. So we have to start from creating the right sort of narrative. And that narrative has to be based on a number of important ideas. First, you've already emphasized it's choice. Technology does not have a preordained path. It's not something that happens to us. We make technology and we choose its direction. We, we choose how to use it. There are ways in which we can use technology in a more pro-human way. And my reading of history, which I try to summarize, is that there are two big pillars of that. We need to push technology 
in a way that complements humans, create new tasks for them, empowers them as workers, as citizens, as civil society members. And we need to embed it in an institution that further distributes political power in an equal way, creates countervailing powers, creates voice for diverse groups and especially workers. So that's the first thing. We need to realize that and the narrative has to be around it. So if today, if you look at newspapers in the UK or the US and much of the rest of the world, the narrative is about AI is happening to us. If anybody is impacting AI, it's either some genius like Sam Altman or the Chinese Communist Party. True, Chinese Communist Party and OpenAI and Microsoft and Google have disproportionate effects on technology, but that's because of a choice that we made as a society. Nobody 100 years ago appointed the Chinese Communist Party as the major overseer of technology. That emerged because of a specific path of development in China. And nobody, I think, appointed Silicon Valley as the only voice in the future of AI. So those are the sort of things that we need to make a central part of the narrative. So the first thing is to have this narrative open to the public. I think the public needs to be concerned, not scared, but concerned, because there are reasons to be concerned here. The future of work, the future of inequality, the future of democracy are at stake. So how could we not be concerned? But that kind of concern needs to come with a proactive attitude. It's not that we're scared, superintelligence is AI is coming and destroying us, whatever we do. And it's not that, to be optimistically, we can leave this in the hands of the tech leaders and they'll do something good for us. We need to be concerned that some dangers exist and we need to get involved. So that's the narrative part. That narrative can only become a reality if, indeed, people become actively involved rather than just being concerned. And that is building of countervailing powers, new institutions, new labor movements. I don't believe the old trade union model is going to work in the future, so we need a new labor movement. Can we do without a labor movement? No, absolutely not, because workers are at the crosshairs of this technology. Many people may lose their jobs or inequality may multiply even more than it has already over the last half century. So that means that there needs to be worker voice in how we use the technology, where we take it. So without a labor movement, that's not possible. Democracy. It's at peril right now, but it needs to be strengthened. So those, that's the institution building part. And then we need to talk about specific technology, to specific policies. You talked about permissionless innovation. Again, who made innovation permissionless? Did the breakthroughs in nuclear physics come out of a permissionless system? Well, yes and no. When you let people do whatever they want, and you know people steal secrets of nuclear weapons and take them to you know Pakistan or North Korea, yes, that's permissionless. But Generally, we've done actually quite well on nuclear physics. We've started a general regulatory framework. We've bolstered ethical approach by physicists. Many physicists refuse to work on nuclear weapons. There is an international cooperation on limiting how you use these nuclear weapons. We have to create the right sort of regulatory framework. Policy. Policy matters a lot. The market system is essential for innovation. You know, I am not going to question that we need a market-based system of innovation. A lot of evidence shows that if you let whatever centralized organization, government bureaucracy, start becoming the innovators, that doesn't work very well. So we need the organizations like OpenAI, other startups in Silicon Valley, 
competition in the market. All of these are good. And the profit motives can be good, but we need to find the right institutional structure for it. We need to find a regulatory structure. So the idea that somehow the market system being good means that we should go for permissionless innovation, that we should go to, oh, move fast and break things. Or we should just say, whatever OpenAI decides, that's the future of large language models. Those two are completely different statements. And that's been one of the problems of the narrative. We have somehow jumped from saying, yes, the market is a great way of generating energy, bringing different perspectives, different ideas, and merging them together, creating innovative dynamics. Yes, but that doesn't mean that the markets have to be permissionless, that markets have to be completely unfettered, that government regulation is bad. No, we definitely need government regulation, especially when the technology's direction is so much of a choice. Let me let me press you a little bit on this Please. on this question of of whether this is actually really possible without challenging the the primacy of the profit motive because I mean you mentioned nuclear technology and that's a great example actually about where a state came in and actually completely controlled the direction of technology development the Manhattan project wasn't a market initiative it was developed during the second world war and it was funded entirely by mm -hmm. the United States government and its <clears throat> allies and that's a brilliant example about a, a a kind of technology that that we've never allowed to become legitimately um, a question of market incentives but Right now, I, I know you call for this this idea of machine usefulness, a kind of much more humane, much more um, pro-social, pro-human, perhaps, um, vision for, for how AI might be used. But the reality is that right now, the the kind of and whether it's right or wrong, the market is has pushed innovation into this question of automation. That's what corporations are interested in. That's where the investment has gone to, and that and of course that therefore that's where the talent has gone into as well. How can we cause that to change course? Absolutely, you're one hundred percent right. The market is doing that right now. Look at one simple example. Google for once acted responsibly and did not release its large language model. And for quite a while, they were in the, in the lead. The transformer uh, models is Google's sort of big innovation, and they spearheaded all of the innovation. And then OpenAI, in a very irresponsible manner, released this technology and became fabulously wealthy, and Microsoft incorporating it into its suite of products, all the OpenAI GPT, you know, its value shot up. So yes. If you want to see examples that the market is pushing this technology in the wrong direction, yes. But my point is that's not in the nature of the market per se either. That's the structure that we have created with regulation and with the social norms and the institutions that we have generated. For example, is it in the nature of corporations that they should squeeze down labor hard and reduce wages and pay that as you know, bonuses to CEOs and shareholders. Many U.S. corporations and U.K. corporations, many European corporations are doing that right now. But no, many other corporations in history have made tremendous amount of money by developing a very different vision. Ford, Henry Ford, was at the forefront of automation, creating new tasks, and a type of arrangement where he was no altruist, by the way, and, you know, had some crazy ideas. But he spearheaded paying high wages, creating loyalty among his workers, so workers would stay around, their productivity would increase, he would train them, they would be part of the stakeholders of the company, as long as they played by his rules, and we don't like his rules, fine. But 
there were many others who followed on Henry Ford that had a more, even more humane version of Henry Ford. I think there is a lot of possibility to make money, but we need, again, worker voice in workplaces. We need a regulatory structure that doesn't let the worst abuses against workers, against consumers, against monitoring of people and data. And we also need new ethical norms to emerge again. I think part of the reason is if in the 1950s, you were a CEO of a large or a mid-sized company, and you said, I'm going to pay myself 10 times as much, and I'm going to cut all of the pay of my workers. People would think you were a monster. Today, we say, oh, what a genius CEO. So those are the incentives. That's not part of the market. Those are part of the broader incentives that we create. And I think that's what we need to recreate again. Let's let's look at regulation and state involvement for a second, Darren, because I think it's so important. And I know that we can see there is an absolute forest of companies that are all emerging based on large language models at the moment, all of whom promise automation in one way or another. And that's just about it. It feels like to me anyway, hit our economy like a tidal wave in terms of what it might do. How deep and how draconian for want of a better word, does this regulation need to be? You said stem the worst abuses. Some might say, is that going far enough? Like, do we need governments to actually, at this point, really make more fine-grained decisions about what form and what manner of automations are going to be allowable and which are not? Great question. I wish I knew the answer. I don't know the answer to that. And part of the reason is very natural, because it's a new technology. We have to experiment with it. So let me give you, like, three bits and pieces that may help make up an answer. First of all, you're absolutely right. The energy in the industry is going in automation. That's what a lot of corporations have in mind. But actually, when you look at successful cases, large language models, even though their architecture is optimized for automation in many ways, they work much better if you use them in a human complementary way. If you give it as a tool to customer service reps, it works much better. So already, there is evidence that we can use these technologies in a more friendly direction. But how can we encourage companies to do that? I don't think we know that regulation because we have we are so behind both in terms of technical expertise within the bureaucracy in terms of what we have done that we need to experiment with regulations. For example, one critical part of the future of regulation is to be data and privacy. Who controls data? How do we protect the data of people? How do we avoid this pitfall where companies can grab other people's data and exploit it. So the best effort for that came from the European Commission. Their general directive on data privacy, GDPR, I think was a fantastic idea. Did it work? No, it backfired. Why? Because you have to try. You know, they made mistakes. If I was in that decision-making table, I would have made the same mistakes because we just don't know how this technology is evolving. So, So that's why we have to play around with different types of regulations. Today, can the government come and say, no, you do this and do that with large language models? Not very easily. That expertise is not there. But we can do a lot of things. First of all, we can stop the indiscriminate, exploitative gathering of huge amounts of data. Today, half a billion people perhaps have used these tools and been very impressed by it, by getting very wise answers. Where does that wisdom come from? It comes from books that have been digitized, many of them without permission. It's come from Wikipedia. Where does Wikipedia's wisdom come from? It's a one fantastic business model. It shows 
how people can come and collaborate in a nonprofit way. And thousands of people put their labor in order to contribute to that learning project. None of them signed a contract saying, well, we put this effort and we are very happy for OpenAI to come and exploit that and make billions of dollars for themselves and their partners. So, you know, we have to find a way of protecting that data. What's the best way of doing that? We don't know. We have to experiment with that. We also have to find a way of encouraging corporations to use this technology in a more labor-friendly way. There are some, some things that can be done there without going into the details of, oh, you know, you do this technology, you don't do that technology. First of all, around most of the industrialized world, the tax code favors capital to labor. What that means is that if you hire labor, you pay more taxes than if you hire a machine or an algorithm to do the same work. So we have to level that playing field so that there isn't this artificial inducement to automate. There is also a huge support implicitly because of a vision among the companies that what they have to do is cut labor costs. So we have to develop an alternative way of here is a way you can profitably actually create new products by cooperating with your labor. So I think all of those are steps that we have to take. Labor organizations are going to be very important in that. Well, uh, firstly, big shout out to the Wikipedians listening to this. They have, in my opinion, anyway, developed probably the first digital wonder of the world entirely outside the profit motive. So it's, it's, it's a great reminder, isn't it, that things like that are still Absolutely. possible. Final question, Darren, for you. People listening to this, I think, probably feel, much like I do, that this is a revolution happening to us rather than one that we're really part of. And we've spoken a lot about big impersonal forces, the invisible, Smith's invisible hand of the market, regulation, governments tech billionaires. Is there anything, any advice that you can give just to those of us bobbing around in these storms in terms of what we all might do in this revolution? Is it to demand more of our politicians? Is it to ask questions of our employers? Is it to reskill? What can we all do to possibly try and, you know, navigate these stormy waters? Great. So let me start from where you started. Yes, right now, it feels like this is happening to us. And there's a good reason for it, because we let it happen to us. There's nothing in the nature of this technology that it should happen to us, and we can take control of it. So that's the first and most important part. It has to start from civil society. It has to start from a broad conversation. That's why media is so important. Media either telling us the techno-optimistic message or the other extreme, the killer robots are coming, just go and hide. I think those are really bad ways of going forward because they pacify people. Now, I think everybody needs to be part of this conversation. The other conceit we have to go beyond is, oh, regular people don't understand algorithms. How can you have a say on the future of AI? You're not one of these brilliant engineers. Well, I don't understand nuclear physics to a level enough to build a nuclear reactor or an atom bomb. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. But I think I should have a say about whether we want to have peaceful development of nuclear power or build more uh, weapons. So in the same way, I think the public needs to have a say on where we want the AI technology to go to. I think that's the most important thing. In addition, I think we all need to also look at it selfishly. What can I do in the labor market? I think flexibility. I think the more flexible workers are, the better that's going to be. Investing in complementary skills. All of the corporations that I think are implementing digital technologies 
require more and more workers with social skills, communication skills, being able to translate what technology is doing to customers, to the rest of the workforce. So I think that sort of social skill, I think is actually a unique part of the human intelligence. We are social animals. We understand things based on context, based on argument, based on communication. There's no way in my mind that algorithms are going to be able to replicate that unique and amazing part of our skill set. So we should use that. We should strengthen it. We should find ways of communicating with machines in order to empower ourselves. That is, again, a social choice issue, but also an individual one. Well, everyone, I'm sorry. That's all we have time for. Uh, this has been completely fascinating, Darren. Thank you so much. Uh, the book, again, is Power and Progress. It's out and it's available at your local bookshop now. Uh, I'm Carl Miller, and you have been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.